Hi, it's Luba and Roma, and you're listening to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. In this podcast, we talk to scholars and experts about their work and new publications to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everybody. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and the nitty-gritty of Arctic research. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Arctic Institute Bookshelf Podcast. And thank you for the wonderful feedback we received from all of you following the launch of the first episode. This week, Luba and I had a conversation with Lillian Husson. Lillian is a research associate and social media manager at the Arctic Institute. Lillian is also a PhD candidate at Rogers University's Division of Global Affairs in New Jersey, where she's held the Simon Wright Fellowship for Research in Global Governance and the Raphael Lemkin Fellowship. She's currently writing her dissertation on American national security in the Arctic and the Baltic theatres. This fall, she co-wrote a book chapter on the US Arctic policy with her very own Victoria Herman in the Handbook of Geopolitics and Security in the Arctic, edited by Joachim Weber and published by Springer. We talked to Lillian about her recent publications and the United States' relationship with the Arctic. We hope you enjoy! Lillian, thanks so much for accepting our invitation to talk with us today and welcome to the Arctic Institute podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first podcast, so I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Lillian. Um, and as a first question, as a way to make our conversation a bit more casual, and we've done this with other guests is to ask uh, to de- describe the room in which you are and the view from your window as accurately as you can. Would you like oh. to give that a go for our listeners? Sure, that's um, that's a good question. Okay, so I am currently in Absica, New Jersey, uh, which is where my parents live. I'm visiting for the weekend because my four-year-old niece is here. And so the room in which I'm uh, currently uh, here right now is my bedroom. And to describe it, you would see um, a whole bunch of medals from uh, the various races that I've completed. So like 10Ks, 5Ks, half marathons, triathlons, a lot of um, like the the bibs that you have for the competition. There's a huge tapestry on the wall. Um, You you would normally find a couple of degrees on the wall, but I had to take those down because some of them fell off. And if you um, if you were to look out the window, it's it's beautiful here. I live right near the bay, um, right near Atlantic City, so I'm very close to the Atlantic Ocean. And so uh, if I look out, you know, I just happen to see huge tree um, in my front yard. And yeah, if you walk down the street, you'll see all of the bay, all of Atlantic City, and the gateway to the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a beautiful spot to be in. That sounds really great. And I didn't actually know that you were a runner. Yes. Uh, That's quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, But to give a little bit, you know, more of a personal context, uh, could you tell us how and maybe where your Arctic research started and why you chose it in the first place? Sure. So um, I came to Arctic research really rather untraditionally. Um, I have a master's degree in Holocaust and genocide studies, which I earned at Stockton University, which is not far from where I am currently in Absecon. And so I had applied to Rutgers University with the intention to continue studying genocide. 
I entered the PhD program in 2015, and it was right around the height of the Syrian refugee crisis and hearing about ISIS in the news every single day. So I applied to Rutgers because I was really interested in what I perceived to be the intersection between genocide and terrorism. It's very, you know, it's very different from, from Arctic studies. And I had taken a couple of classes with um, now my dissertation advisor, his name is Simon Reich. And it, so I had taken two classes with him in one semester. So I had him twice. And in one class, I was working on um, the Syrian refugee crisis, but I was sort of um, expanding my research. So I wasn't really looking at, you know, genocidal-like conflict. Instead, I was looking at um, asylum policy in Scandinavia. And so in order to make my work at least geographically similar, um, when I took another class that same semester with the same professor, um, he told me to look at the Arctic. And this was for a class on grand strategy. So to learn about um, American grand strategy specifically. And it turned out that I was not so interested in the intellectual um, discipline of immigration studies. That didn't really resonate with me, um, despite my interest in genocide and genocide studies. But I absolutely fell in love with the Arctic. And I, I loved what I was studying from a strategic point of view. And I thought, this is an area in which we're going to hear more about uh, the Arctic, we're going to hear more about strategy, and we're going to hear more about U.S. engagement in the future, especially as you know, climate change starts to open up the waters up there. So that's how I got into it. It's, um, it's probably not the answer that most people would expect, um, but I will say that even from the time that I was a teenager, I was fascinated by the Arctic, and my favorite author is Philip Pullman. He wrote a trilogy called His Dark Materials, and I I got that uh, that first book, um, The Golden Compass, when I was maybe about 13. And the protagonist, she's a young girl who was about the same age as when I was reading it. She was about 13. She, um, she travels to Svalbard. And so that was actually my first interest in the Arctic. So it's kind of come full circle because I never thought that I would get a chance to study the Arctic region formally. Um, and so it's it's kind of been a really cool opportunity. And so I've had the interest, but now I get the chance to actually do something with that interest. And I love it. Yeah, it seems like a very interesting pathway into the uh, Arctic research. And I would say also quite unusual, like academically. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, this is really unique, I would say. But when it comes to books, you know, and uh, that we get to re read when we're kids and all the fascination with the Arctic and the northern regions, then I can I could agree with you here. <laughs> Liz. Yeah. And I can totally relate with liking his documentaries. I think it's a wonderful series of books. Uh, and also now we all work for the Arctic Institute. Uh, which is a prominent part of um, of of the Piz Dark Matter <laughs> book series as well. Uh, I mean, not not the real Arctic Institute. Uh, but switching gear a little bit, talking of grand strategy and Arctic policy and U.S. Uh, US engagement, you've just published a book chapter with uh, our director Victoria Herman on the U.S. Arctic policy through. Uh, the Eyes of Congress titled No Unclosed, No Eyebreakers, No Clues. 
and you highlight five themes of American Arctic security. Uh, could you uh, talk us a bit, talk to us a bit more about those five themes and uh, why, uh, as you say, despite sustained interest in these, the U.S. seems to have no clue and no strategy. Sure. So, um, so this was a really interesting piece of work that Victoria and I were um, able to do, and I'll say that we wrote this in uh, in 2018 and 2019. And um, and so it's been really interesting also to see what has come since we've published this article. And so I'll, I'll talk about that probably a little bit later. Um, so to just kind of set the scene, why did we even decide to work on this at all? Well, we wanted to look at Congress because I don't know that people have really been focusing on Congress specifically as it pertains to the Arctic. And so because the U.S. Congress has you know, the imperative to propose, to fund, to enact laws and activities um, that steer U.S. activities, we thought, okay, this is a really good starting point for us to understand what exactly is going on in the United States as it pertains to the Arctic. So um, in our research, we decided that we would look at um, the Library of Congress's digital archive, and we put in just one term, we just put in Arctic, and we wanted to see how many times it appeared um, between 1973 to 2018, so the last um, session in Congress that we could study. And we chose uh, 1973, I should say, because um, it was around that time that Nixon had proposed, um, that President Nixon had proposed the first Arctic policy. So the Arctic appeared 986 times in, um, in our search between 1973 and 2018. And it was really interesting because there were 459 pieces of legislation alone that were proposed between 2007 and 2018. So that was 46% of the 459 um, uh, pieces of, excuse me, of the 986 times um, that the Arctic showed up in, in our results. So broadly, we had identified about seven themes um, in which the Arctic appeared, and that was wilderness, oceans, climate change, security, energy, uh, policy more broadly. And then also interestingly enough, um, we, we added a non-Arctic de designator because it seemed sometimes the Arctic was included in uh, legislative pieces that either nominally had something to do with the Arctic or perhaps not even at all. And so that's where um, your question comes into play because we had narrowed it down to five themes that we wanted to um, look at specifically. And those five themes were energy security, UNCLOS, or the United, Nation United Nations Convention on the Law of the Seas, um, U.S. leadership more broadly as it pertains to the Arctic, uh, climate security, and also icebreakers. Um, so did you want me to kind of say a little bit about um, those five things? Uh, sure, yes. Okay. So um, I'll just kind of... Uh, walk through the article then a little bit. And so with our first um, of the five themes, which was about energy security, this we had identified as being the most legislated Arctic issue um, in our research. So 306 times we found um, that the Arctic was tied to uh, bills related to energy. So 306 out of the 459 times. And most often, what we found was that uh, ANWR, or the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, was in the middle of this energy debate. And so 
the um, Senate had refused to open the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge in 2002. And by the time the Obama administration came to be, uh, President Obama didn't make any attempts to open the refuge. Uh, but what we saw in this most recent presidential administration, President Trump um, wanted to reopen it in late 2017. And, uh, and so that has been um, you know, a controversial move. It's been welcomed by many, um, and it's certainly being challenged. But, so that's kind of the, um, the, the little bit of work that we did on the energy as one of our five themes. The second was UNCLOS. And I should really um, defer to you here, Roman, because you are certainly the UNCLOS expert and you have far more to say about this with your expertise than I do. But we were looking at UNCLOS because um, since about 1984, uh, under the Reagan administration, there have been um, some fears that exceeding to UNCLOS would cede American sovereignty in the face of international law. And, um, and so this uh, attitude still persists today. Um, you know, the United States, as of um, you know, right now, as of September 24th, has not uh, exceeded to UNCLOS. And typically, those fears come from um, either Republican officials or conservative officials who are concerned about these um, fears of, of uh, losing American sovereignty. But the United States does. Um, adhere to UNCLOS, at least through customary law, which means that the U.S. supports it, but does not accede to it. And what I found in both the research that I've done for this article, as well as for my own dissertation research, is that there is, in fact, a lot of bipartisan support um, in Congress. And there's also a lot of support from federal officials and from military officials. So perhaps later on, if, um, you know, if you want to talk about my dissertation research, I can get into that a little bit. So it is interesting that there is a tremendous amount of support for exceeding um, to UNCLOS, but it still uh, has not been ratified in Congress. So the third issue um, that we that we investigated, which was uh, icebreakers, this is a really interesting topic because the U.S. Coast Guard acts as America's Arctic surface presence. But what is so challenging about this, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, is that the Coast Guard is really struggling with the icebreakers that it has. So um, I'm sure you've heard over the summer that there was a fire aboard um, one of the icebreakers, and it was just kind of emblematic of the struggles that the Coast Guard has had to really exercise its mission in the Arctic. And I think it's it's kind of demonstrative of, of the fact that, you know, in spite of America's increasing interest in the Arctic, especially in the past couple of years, the U.S. doesn't seem to be able to fully exercise those interests. If you don't have um, a surface presence that is able to um, functionally operate in the Arctic, you know, this is a big problem. And so in our research, uh, we found that there were numerous obstacles um, to the Coast Guard getting the icebreakers that it needs. And those included high price tags, um, sequestration, budget cuts, as well as the purpose of the mission or to look at you know, opportunity costs. And so that, that is especially an interesting point because, and again, I look at this in my own dissertation research as well. You know, if you are going to spend somewhere between 850 million to a billion dollars, which are some of the price tags that were floating around um, 
if you look into this from the past couple of years, if you're going to spend that much money and it's for a ship that has, you know, essentially one purpose, that's a lot of money that could be spent on, you know, other investing in other assets that could have, you know, dual use capabilities or could function in other parts of the world. And so, you know, if you're going to spend that much money for, you know, a surface presence in the Arctic, you're not going to send that down to, uh, you know, perhaps the Caribbean or, you know, somewhere else where the Coast Guard also operates. So that that's a real obstacle. What's interesting about that is that in 2018, the Coast Guard renamed its icebreaking project to Polar Security Cutter. And since then, uh, and, I, you know, this is simplifying things a bit, but since then, we've seen more interest in uh, procuring funding for um, for icebreakers. And of course, now the U.S. Coast Guard is um, going to build its first new icebreaker, uh, which should be operational um, in a couple of years. Uh, and so, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, the fourth uh, theme that we investigated was leadership. And this has changed quite a bit since we published the article. Because at the time of publication, there was no U.S. Arctic leader. Um, in 2017, the then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, he abolished the position within the State Department for um, the Special Representative for the Arctic, I believe it was called. And that was held by uh, Admiral Papp at the time. So that office was abolished in 2017. And so that's where you know, we were at the time in our writing was to, um, to identify that this was a gap in, in U.S. Arctic interests. And um, there has been some congressional action to appoint a U.S. ambassador for the Arctic region, um, but that never came to fruition. And what's, uh, what's notable now is that in 2020, um, in fact, the State Department now has a U.S. coordinator for the Arctic region, and that is now currently being led by um, James DeHart. So, so that's, uh, you know, an example of something that has changed since our article was published. Um, and then the final um, theme that we identified was climate security. And this one, you know, it, it sounds like it could be um, a really great avenue of discussion because, of course, climate change is, you know, such an important consideration when we think about the Arctic. And, of course, um, there are about 20 bills a year that are related to climate change. Um, that are, you know, that advance in Congress, but they only mention the Arctic in passing. And so we found that um, there wasn't too much more that we could elaborate there because the Arctic might have been used as, you know, um, I don't want to say a plug for lack of a better word, but it was just kind of nominally mentioned as an area, but it wasn't, you know, a, a congressional bill that actually dealt with um, the Arctic or with climate change in the Arctic specifically. So hopefully I haven't spoken too much there, um, but those were the five themes that we investigated in our article. Thanks. Uh, thanks for such a detailed account. Um, you mentioned the 2020 U.S. coordinator. Uh, do you know what the scope of their mandate is? Um, that's a good question, and I think that that will probably be um, – will be you know determined in the future since it is um essentially a, a new position um because it's uh under the purview of the uh, the state department this is not necessarily going to be 
a position that will look domestically at U.S. Arctic interests. This is really about um, representing uh, the U.S. Uh, in an international setting um, as it pertains to, to um, the Arctic. So, uh, you know, while the Arctic is both a site, a domestic site and an international site of interest for the United States, it appears that this will really be um, an externally facing position. So not so much dealing with internal Arctic issues. US Arctic issues. Okay, thanks. And perhaps as a follow up on this, what do you think Congress can do to strengthen the US Arctic engagement and work towards more Arctic security for the US? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so let me just mention here um, a couple of, um, of these key congressional Arctic actors. And so it might be as expected that, um, of course, the Alaskan uh, politicians are, you know, some of the biggest Arctic advocates, right? So it, it should be expected, you know, the late ten uh, Senator Ted Stevens, um, former Senator Mark Begich, and then the current Senators um, Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan. These are all um, some of the, the big Arctic advocates, as well as Representative Don Young. What's also interesting, though, is um, looking at who else is supporting um, Arctic-related legislation in Congress. And so that includes um, the U.S. state of Washington, uh, as well as the U.S. state of California. And this is um, primarily because of the tremendous Coast Guard presence. And so it is in the interest of the um, political representatives of these states to support um, especially Coast Guard-related issues. Uh, but but here's what I'll, what I'll say about Congress and about, you know, perhaps what Congress could, could do. There is a Senate Arctic Caucus and there is a Congressional Arctic Working Group. So we have um, a, you know, an Arctic body on each side of Congress. But um, what I've found in, in um, my research with Victoria, as well as my own dissertation research, is that the, there is really not much transparency in what the Senate, Senate Arctic Caucus and what the Congressional Arctic Working Group does. And so I just checked this morning again because I wanted to make sure. Um, in in the, uh, the book chapter that we've published, I note that the Congressional Arctic Working Group website has not been updated since 2016. And so I, I checked again this morning just to make sure, and it still has not been updated. And when you look for the Senate Arctic Caucus, the first uh, search result that comes up is the announcement of the Senate Arctic Caucus which was um, uh, mentioned, in, which came to be in 2015. So I think if, if we want to look at what Congress could potentially do or, or what the U.S. needs to do in the future to, to um, look at U.S. Arctic interests, I think we need to, to see more transparency. You know, um, and if it comes down to simply having a website with accessible information for people um, who are interested in what Congress uh, is doing as it pertains to the Arctic, then I think that's a really good and simple starting point, right? So update your presence so that way people can learn more. So I, I think really that that's like a very simple and and um, uh, an easy challenge that one can accept is to um, is to really reinvigorate uh, the online presence so that way people can learn more. Um, does that answer your question? I'm sorry. I think it does. Yes. Thanks. You know, I've been wondering, this transparency issue is a very interesting one. And do you think that um, 
that this happens, that the lack of transparency comes from the fact that the Arctic, like the US Arctic policy and uh, is solely focused on security, like on the uh, notion of security. And it's it only, you know, goes around security, mm -hmm. <laughs> climate security, energy security, whatever security it is. But do you think that this can be the the um, the root cause of this lack of transparency? Um, that's a good question. I'm I'm not really sure. I think um, you know in in the book chapter we mentioned that the U.S. Arctic activities are kind of like taking one step forward and two steps back. Um, you know, in terms of of how things are classified that that Victoria and I did looking at energy security. Um, looking at, um, uh, you know, icebreakers and, and so the security in, involved with, um, with icebreaking and looking at you know, hard security and soft security issues. I think those were really, um, we, we sort of applied those terms to, in order to better contextualize some of the issues that fall underneath of, of those categories. Um, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, if that really is, um, uh, you know, determinative of um, the lack of transparency. I think, I think the, you know, as far as the, the websites go, I think the issue there is, is just, you know, how committed are you? Um, if, if you have, uh, you know, the Senate Arctic Caucus or you have the Congressional Arctic Working Group, you know, if, if you're not regularly posting, okay, well, you have, you know, a congressional delegation that is going to, let's say, perhaps Norway or, or to visit Greenland or Canada, you know, if, if those kinds of announcements are not being made in somewhere that's easily accessible, what does that tell you about, um, you know, uh, the interests more broadly about um, America and the Arctic? So I, I don't really know. Um, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. But I think, um, I think, I think the United States and, and the various um, entities that sort of represent um, uh, federal Arctic interests, I, I just think, um, that this really needs to be um, seen as an interest, right? And not just something that's nominal, not just thinking about the Arctic as, you know, being part of America's backyard, but really looking at this at the forefront and recognizing that this is not just, um, you know, a side issue, but this is a critical issue for the United States. Um, so I, I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. But what I will say is that in other parts of um, of U.S. interests in the Arctic, you know, that is very much there. And so, for example, if you were to look at um, the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, um, if you were to look at the Arctic Council and then specifically the State Department's um, Arctic lead in the Arctic Council, you know, that information is there. And, and that, I'd say, is, is um, transparent. But, yeah, as far as it, as far as, um, it pertains to uh, Congress, uh, I think there definitely needs to be some some more work done there. You know, I think with the commitment, um, it's uh, with the Arctic, it's like this that you have to be pretty much committed and on on all possible levels yeah. and on all possible topics. Uh, it doesn't really work if you're committed to security, but you're not really committed to climate change. Yeah. And of course, it's so like the the. Uh, the environment is so international um, and there are so many actors on so many levels that you really have to be <laughs> committed uh, wholly to that. So um, You do. And you know, um, if, if I might add something, 
Well, so so let me just add first, um, if the United States is not, uh, whether it's, you know, federal officials or, or something more broadly, if if the U.S. isn't raising attention of indigenous issues, of um, Alaska Native issues in the Arctic, whether it pertains to welfare or, um, you know, jobs, economy, uh, infrastructure um, up, up in Alaska, you know, that that needs to come first and foremost, right? We, we have American citizens and, and we need to be inclusive um, of that conversation. The other thing that I want to mention, though, which is which is interesting, and, and I'll, I'll link this a little bit to transparency, but, you know, we're talking about Alaska here. I'm talking about Alaska here. But I'd also like to, um, to direct the attention over to the U.S. state of Maine over on the, um, you know, the, the east coast of the United States. And Maine, of course, is not an Arctic state that only belongs to Alaska. But uh, the state of Maine has done some really interesting work um, in the last couple of years to kind of position itself as perhaps um, the U.S.'s uh, near Arctic state, but in this case, you know, a, a U.S. state. And I think what they've done is is really interesting. And so um, Senator Angus King is part of the Senate Arctic Caucus. He's one of the co-founders with um, Senator Murkowski. Um, so, so you can look at that. But you can also look at what the state of Maine is doing, um, you know, at the, uh, you know, like at the economic level. And um, so I, I think there's some really interesting things to be um, seen there. And I was in the state of Maine. Um, oh, this would be last May, 2019, I, I went up there. And just in like one day, I had met with um, members of the Maine National Guard. I, uh, I toured the Aimskip, which is an Icelandic shipping company. Um, and then I also attended a conference um, and it was uh, for Arctic economic investment, right? So, so all of this in one day, it was all focused on what Maine is doing to um, to position itself as sort of a, a player in this Arctic um, game. And so if you want to look for, um, you know, transparency, I think really fascinating um, and, and perhaps a little bit off topic from, from this conversation about Congress. But um, if people are interested in looking at other ways that the U.S. is articulating its, uh, its Arctic interests, I think looking at that um, is a really interesting topic for this yeah, I think yeah. it's super interesting. Uh, I was I was at the Arctic uh, Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. I think it was in around 2015-2016 when uh, Angus King and uh, Lisa Mikowski they were there announcing this this like kind of new partnership. And the, there was a, uh, a like not new partnership, but like um, Maine as as seeing itself as an Arctic player. And there was a huge delegation from Maine as well at the Arctic Circle Assembly that year. Uh, and they were talking about having a deep water seaport and commercial links to, as you said, with uh, Aimskip to Iceland and, and also potentially to, um, to Greenland. So, um, no, definitely what Maine is doing to place itself as a Nordic player, so to say, even though the term is, I don't know, a bit cliche, uh, is, is definitely, I mean, could or could be a role model for other uh, U.S. engagement towards the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, but if we, I mean, looking at the future now, what do you think are the next steps? So how the situation could be improved? And perhaps to run this conversation up, uh, where do you see the U.S. Arctic engagement in 2030 and 2040? 
Hmm. That's, uh, that's a tough question. Where do I see the U.S. in 2030 and 2040, I think, is another question you could ask. Um, in addition to where the U.S. will be um, looking specifically at the Arctic. So I can say a couple of things about this. But um, if we're looking at, you know, why the U.S. is suddenly so interested now, you know, as perhaps a way to determine how the U.S. might be interested in the future, I think there's a lot of ways then that perhaps we could analyze that question, um, especially as we consider you know, the connection between climate change and international relations. So, so you know, is U.S. interest right now, is it about the Arctic itself? Is it about um, this narrative of great power competition? Is it, you know, a resurgence of great power competition? Or is it about, you know, perhaps domestic political interests, right? Which is something that we were looking at in this book chapter. Is it about, you know, opportunities um, in the Arctic in the future? So I think, um, I, I think that I would kind of want to evaluate those questions first before I think about what might happen in 2030 or 2040. Um, and so, yeah, what, what's going to happen with, um, with the next elections where, we'll, where the U.S. citizens will elect the next president and, um, of course, uh, you know, um, Congress and, and respective states. Um, so I think that that's something to consider. Uh, we have to consider what the interests um, might be uh, presently and going forward. So, of course, that should include indigenous welfare, looking at um, the issues that Alaska natives um, are facing up in Alaska. We have to think about environmental conservation, of course, natural resource exploitation, and increasing um, commercial interests in Alaska, as well as um, maritime interests uh, in the broader circumpolar Arctic. I think we have to think about threats. Um, threats can be, you know, uh, climate change or uh, perhaps the perceived legitimacy of climate change. Um, the perceived credibility of great power competition. So looking, you know, at um, transnational um, threats, uh, whether they're state-based or sort of um, collective action problems. Um, and then how are we, you know, how, how will the U.S. Um, come to address those issues? You know, is it going to be multilateral cooperation? Uh, is it going to be unilateral action? You know, how important will the Arctic Council be going forward? Um, or perhaps, you know, will there be um, a pivot to other types of uh, security institutions or creation of new security institutions? Um, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk in the media about conflict and, and whether great power competition is a concern or a threat in the Arctic um, or whether it's, you know, a spillover of tension elsewhere. There's so many things, I think, to think about, um, at least with, you know, how the U.S. is. Um, assessing its interests and uh, threats in the region and how that will continue in 2030. So, um, you know, I, I can't see into the future, of course. What I will say, though, is that U.S. Arctic policy hasn't actually changed since 2009 on paper. So um, that was uh, National Security Presidential 66, and that came out in the very last days of um, the, George, uh, the George W. Bush administration. Um, so that hasn't changed, right? We've seen continuity through the Obama administration, and we've seen that continuity through the Trump administration. It could very well be that, you know, in um, the next couple of years, that that will endure. We'll still see that um, National Security Presidential 66, uh, which is you know, the U.S.'s Arctic region policies, we could see that that will, you know, 
continue to uh, be in place. So it, it's a matter of, um, you know, perhaps what uh, a presidential administration will do with that or what, you know, federal entities or the military will do. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen in, uh, in 2030. But my hope is that U.S. officials will continue to um, use the Arctic Council as, um, as a multilateral institution in which to um, work with the other um, Arctic members, uh, the A8, um, as well as, you know, observers uh, and indigenous groups who are represented in the Arctic Council. That, that is definitely my hope that we will see um, that the Arctic Council endures uh, in the next, you know, decade or two. Um, other than that, um, one of the, the things that I really wanted to see and has happened was the reinstitution of some sort of um, U.S. Arctic leader, and that has happened. And so I hope that that will not be taken away as it was in 2017. Hopefully, you know, this, this office will be here to stay. Um, and uh, another thing, and again, this sort of touches more on my dissertation research than the book chapter, but if, if we're looking at, you know, what the U.S. will do going forward, um, we also have to think about the military. And so, you know, there have been Coast Guard Arctic, well, there's been Defense Department Arctic strategies, there's been Coast Guard Arctic strategies, Navy, um, and the, the Department of the Air Force just released its, its first Arctic strategy for the Air Force and the Space Force. So going forward, my hope is that we'll see more of this. We'll see that, that all of the services, including um, you know, the Marine Corps and the Army, will, uh, will provide their own strategic vision for the Arctic. Because if we want to talk about having a clue um, for the Arctic region, I think everybody needs to be thinking about you know, their role and what they could be do going forward, because that's really important for transparency. That was a very long answer. I don't know if it was an answer to your question. I hope it was, uh, but yeah, that was a long answer. Uh, I think uh, it was a perfectly fine answer. Thanks, thanks a lot. Um, you talk about continuity between the Obama administration uh, since '09 and the Trump administration, and I guess this is a view from the inside or as a as a U.S. insider, but from the outside, uh, when we look at other bodies like the Arctic Council, we see a lot of uh, discontinuity. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think this could change with uh, the election? Or do you think that there will be this continuity, discontinuity discourse, uh, even uh, outside the US? That's a good question. And, and you bring up a really interesting point, um, looking at the US from the outside and, and not looking at it, um, you know, perhaps with, with um, American eyes, so to speak. Um, and yeah, so you, you bring up a good point, because on paper, right, the, this, 2000, um, this 2009 policy uh, has remained the same. But um, of course, when we look at the actions of the Obama administration, um, in comparison to the Trump administration, we do see quite a bit of difference in the ways in which um, the U.S. articulated its Arctic interests uh, at the times. And so, for example, to, to put very simply, um, the Obama administration really focused, I'd say, on um, environmental uh, conservation in the Arctic region. And with the Trump administration, we see more of an interest in opening ANWR, the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge, as well as talking about uh, great power, specifically Russia and China, 
in the Arctic region and, and what they're doing. And so, Rama, I, I sort of think back to 2018 when U.S. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo spoke before the Arctic Council um, in Finland, and he called out Russia and China as, um, I believe, aggressive um, uh, powers in the Arctic region, or that they had, you know, they had interests that might run counter to some of the other Arctic states. And that was really the first time that we've ever seen, uh, at least in my research, the first time that we've ever seen in the post-Cold War era this um, this high level of a um, calling out of Russia and China and the Arctic by a, a senior American official. Um, so you're right, there absolutely is this sort of discontinuity between what we see um, on paper, perhaps, and then the administrations that um, continue to um, exercise those interests in this 2009 um, policy. So um, going forward, you know, will we see more of this continuity or discontinuity? I think it's an interesting um, conversation to have. And, you know, in the various sort of circles in which I, I get to participate or observe um, conversations about, you know, um, the, the Arctic in the future, uh, China does seem to occupy quite a uh, quite a large part of those conversations. And so it could very well be that with uh, President Biden in office, um, that we might see, you know, more of the same of looking at um, China and Russia as potential cooperative partners. But if they continue to exercise interests that the U.S. administration finds contrary to this um, idea of, you know, um, low tension uh, in the region, then, you know, then that could change. Um, and I'll just also say, just thinking back to President Obama and his intentions to keep the Alaskan National Wildlife Region closed, uh, we might see um, continuity there, um, since, of course, uh, uh, he was vice president at the time. So, yeah, the, the continuity-discontinuity dilemma is an interesting one. But if we come back to, uh, and you mentioned Pompeo's, uh, Mike Pompeo's speech at the uh, Arctic Council in Rovaniemi, who do you think this rhetoric is for? Is it because the Arctic is very much a niche uh, area of U.S. engagement? It's not, I mean, it's not at the forefront of U.S. Arctic foreign policy. So who do you think it, it is for when Pompeo says that it's quite aggressive and, I mean, they could be characterized as outlandish as well. Statements about China and about Russia, is, is it more for a domestic audience or is it for the Arctic Council per se, do you think? Hmm. Good question. Um, I, I would say that it's not necessarily for the other Arctic Council members because um, I think that the reaction to Secretary Pompeo's statements it was quite quite vocal on Twitter, I'll say, <laughs> just looking at how everybody responded to that um, in the Arctic, Arctic academic communities as, as well as the policy communities. So I, I don't necessarily think that those statements were made for the other Arctic Council members. And I don't know that I would even say that it's for, um, you know, an American domestic audience in the sense that very few Americans actively, you know, consider what the U.S. is doing in the Arctic, I don't, I don't think that occupies a lot of, um, a lot of attention in, uh, for for most Americans. But I do think that it might resonate to 
certain um, American audiences that are also concerned about this rhetoric of great power competition for people who are, you know, um, wary of Russian um, activities along the Russian coastline, as well as for Chinese activities, whether it's, um, you know, uh, in Russia, whether it's in Greenland or in Iceland, um, or even um, up near the United States uh, on the Alaskan border, or even the main border. So it, it could be that it's speaking to that, um, because certainly if we were to look at the national security strategy and national defense strategies that were published during the Trump administration, um, which really articulate this, um, you know, this rhetoric of great power competition, then it certainly fits within that audience and, and the people who would be reading that. But um, yeah, to answer your question, definitely, I don't think it was uh, it was as receptive on Arctic Council years. Well, let's just hope that uh, the future brings some change in this rhetoric <laughs> and it will somehow go into a more friendly way, so to say. Yes. And more, co- and more cooperative, <laughs> even though, yeah, you never know what happens as this year has already taught us. Um, but, you know, whatever the changes are, I hope that they will be positive rather than negative, especially in regards to your research and your future work. <laughs> Thank you. And it will be really, you know, exciting to see where your academic path leads you and where you end up after your dissertation is done. It could be exciting. And, could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we all look forward pretty much to, uh, to reading it. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for your deep insights and for such a nice conversation, Lillian. Thank, oh, you, thank so you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And this concludes this week's episode of the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. We hope you did enjoy our conversation with Lillian this week. If you've listened until the end, first, thank you so much. It means a lot. But also, it must mean you really enjoy learning about the Arctic. So if you're looking for more Arctic content and want to keep up to date with what's happening in the region, you can always subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Arctic This Week, or download our news app. It's totally free and you get a weekly rundown of the latest news and analysis in Arctic security, environment, politics and culture directly to your inbox or smartphone every week. We've shared over 40,000 stories with readers across more than 90 countries. Subscribe to the newsletter or download the app to make it part of your weekly routine.